Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series, Integrity Matters, Exploring the National Defense Authorization Act, sponsored by K2 Integrity. This week, I visit with Chip Ponce, who is the global co-head of the K2 Integrity Financial Crimes Risk Management Practice and a member of K2 Integrity's board. He co-founded the Financial Integrity Network in 2014, which merged with K2 Intelligence in 2019. The combined firm announced its new name, K2 Integrity, in November 2020. From 2002 to 2013, Chip served as the inaugural director of the Office of Strategic Policy for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes and a senior advisor at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Prior to K2 Integrity, Chip also served as HSBC's Interim Head of Financial Crimes Compliance for Mexico and the Latin American region, assisting in the development and implementation of an enterprise-wide financial crimes compliance program adherent to global standards. I'm also joined by Gail Fuller. Gail is a Managing Director at K2 Integrity. She leads the teams, providing advisory support to a wide variety of clients, including foreign governments, financial institutions, and fintech firms, helping them navigate the complex challenges relating to compliance with anti-money laundering, combating the financing of terrorism regulations, U.S. and international sanctions, and bribery and anti-corruption laws. Gail spent nearly eight years with the U.S. federal government focused on combating illicit finance. Over this five-part series, we will break down the changes to the Bank Secrecy Act and changes in enforcement to authority to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, which are found in the recently passed National Defense Authorization Act. Topics include breaking down the big picture, company formation reform, new opportunities under this new law, coming changes to corporate governance under the NDAA, and taking the long view of the new law. This is one of the most significant new laws around banks, bank secrecy in nearly 20 years. They will apply to financial institutions and a wide variety of others going forward. In this episode four, I'm joined by Chip Ponce once more to take a look at changes in governance brought about by the new law. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for our fourth episode in our five-part exploration of the new National Defense Authorization Act, specifically around uh, the expansion of the Bank Secrecy Act. Today, I'm pleased to have back with me Chip Ponce. Chip, first of all, welcome back. Tom, so great to be here for uh, for this segment of of reporting on on the AML reforms that have just been adopted by Congress. Uh, great to be back with you. There were some changes in governance, and I was wondering if we might be able to take some time to explore them, maybe starting with where we were and where we are now. Yeah, uh, governance is to me it's at the heart of so many of the challenges associated with implementation of the Bank Secrecy Act, and I, I've spent a lot of time, probably too much, with myself um, uh, on this issue. Is it because we're American and we don't like to be governed, or is it is it something you know, more specific to the BSA? And and um, I say that sort of jokingly, but sort of not. You know, the U.S. system of governance has has always been one of um, balancing a decentralized approach with the need for um, uh, governance that provides some coherence to the whole structure. Um, we've spent some time talking about the risk-based approach and how under a risk-based approach, it's very hard to centralize governance because by definition, the risk which sits in the financial institution is in order to be addressed effectively has to be addressed at 
Um, the point where those risks enter the system, which is in a decentralized, privatized financial system consisting of hundreds of thousands of financial service providers. So how do you govern that in any sort of a, a centralized way becomes a really interesting and important challenge for us. Um, this this act does not does not centralize governance in a way that that uh, that um, uh, is is um, is at odds with a risk based approach or with the accountability of individual institutions and and uh, and what happens um, when when they confront risk um, in the financial system and in the underlying economy. But what it does try to do is create um, governance mechanisms that that clarify expectations and and um, better align um, uh, all of the efforts of our financial institutions, our regulators, our law enforcement um, to, to spend more time chasing bad guys and, and co- combating risk and less time fighting over um, what good risk management looks like. And it does this in a couple different ways. Um, one way it does this is through um, interagency, better inter- interagency coordination and cooperation and, and information sharing. Um, we, we have a system in, in the AML regime itself, um, whether in the United States or elsewhere, that relies on um, uh, coordination across different areas of government. We've got the regulators, obviously, that are charged with making sure that our financial institutions follow uh, the laws and, and regulations in this instance associated with AML and combating illicit finance. We have law enforcement, obviously, charged with investigating, prosecuting, confiscating assets associated with financial crime. Um, we have policymakers who, who attempt to bridge these gaps a national intelligence and, and uh, security community that's increasingly using financial information. So a lot of moving parts. And, and to coordinate those efforts on an interagency basis, um, this act begins, uh, in my view, with the right spot of w- what is the risk? What are the challenges? What are the threats that we're facing? And requiring uh, reporting from the Department of Justice and the law enforcement community um, to the Treasury, to the federal functional regulators around um, where we see our priority threats and risks. Um, that's an important place to start with a risk-based approach is what are the risks that we worry about and why? So that's that's a great starting point. There are other areas we can talk about that cover, um, based on those risks, how uh, financial institutions are examined, supervised, and and how they implement their AML programs to deal with those risks. Chip, one of the, uh, I think, significant areas of reform and expansion is around whistleblowers and whistleblower protection. And I've Study. I have a great interest in this area, and I've studied it. This particular provision uh, quite a bit, and it has some very unique aspects from the federal whistleblower kind of law and protections. But I was wondering uh, what uh, were some of your thoughts around this new whistleblower protection in the BSA, and how should companies uh, begin to think through, or what do they need to think through uh, with this new enactment? Thanks, Tom. And 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 the, the I'm not a whistleblower expert, but I have looked at this provision with great interest because I think it backs into a, a broader um, concern around how do we get better information around um, where we see financial institutions um, potentially not performing um, their obligations uh, to to implement AML programs that are effective and, and sustainable. Um, how do we how do we protect those within those institutions that are trying to help those institutions? Um, and there's been a lot of discussion over the last 20 years around how these compliance obligations of our financial institutions to implement programs to effectively address and manage financial crime risks, those are obligations that the institutions have as a whole. They're not obligations that sit on the back of a compliance officer or a BSA officer or an AML officer. 
the institution as a whole is responsible for this. And there's been a lot of discussion about um, the challenges associated with institutional responsibility for implementing these controls. And we call that a culture of compliance, often associated with, um, with, uh, with Bank Secrecy Act obligations. And that culture starts at the top. Um, there, again, a lot, of, a lot of debate around this and, and a growing understanding that uh, a financial institution has to understand its responsibilities and its risks associated with uh, the BSA from the very top, um, from the board of directors through senior executive management, and then across the so-called three lines of defense, the business, the, the compliance teams, and the independent um, testing audit um, teams that make sure that banks do what they say they do. In that process, any individual who comes forward and sees that a financial institution is, is not doing what it needs to be doing should be protected and should be encouraged um, to, to raise their hand and say, we've got a problem here. And so the whistleblower protections are designed to do exactly that. And in many ways, um, that should be viewed as a benefit, not just to, um, to uh, those in, in, in compliance now that may look at this and say, I, I don't have any recourse for how to how to deal with um, with challenges and implementation that are not being addressed, um, but uh, really for for uh, the leadership of those institutions to to go back through the business and to, and to explain, look, there's now additional reporting that that may um, get us in trouble here. We have to make sure that we are responsive as an institution to concerns about um, implementation of our of our AML programs. And so, if we're not doing this right, we've now got additional exposure from people who may internally be frustrated, and, and that's not an outcome that we want to see. So how do we make sure that compliance understands that they're not on an island, that they have the support of senior leadership and the business? How do we make sure that the business understands that this is compliance isn't compliance's job? <laughs> it's everybody's job. You know, this whistleblower uh, provision, in my mind, just it brings it brings that discussion into sharp focus and, and giving um, uh, uh, real teeth to, to the notion that Financial institutions have to own this responsibility as an institution and not just put it on, on the second line of defense or on, on, a, on a compliance officer. One of the more controversial provisions is that, uh, as I read the law, a compliance officer, a lawyer in the legal department, or other person who may have had either a legal uh, obligation of confidentiality or, uh, um, by tradition, uh, an obligation of confidentiality or an internal auditor, uh, can go directly to the government and uh, without whistleblowing internally. And I've seen some commentators raise this as potential conflict of interest. I, I will tell you my position, and then perhaps you can share with me your thoughts on it. I completely reject that. Uh, I've, I've been in this field for almost 20 years, and, and I cannot think of one compliance officer, internal auditor, or general counsel that did not try to raise issues within the company internally and uh, try to rec- rectify whatever the situation was uh, before they would even consider going outside. So I, I completely reject a potential conflict of interest. But, I mean, you've been in this space. You've been in financial institutions. You run your own consulting practice. You've been with the government. And I guess I wanted to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, Tom, thanks for that. And and, and it's tricky for for the reasons that you've explained and 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 I agree with you there 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 is more than enough space um to allow for this independent um reporting from an individual to the government. Um because at the end of the day, we we see we see too many institutions in which um 
compliance interests have been frustrated. That has been a signature of the enforced environment over the past several years and in, in, in various financial institutions that have been penalized for noncompliance with the BSA. Um, to give additional recourse to those individuals, I, I, I think makes sense. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not mutually exclusive to your point. Um, it's not as if this whistleblowing um, provision um, uh, would shut out an individual from raising things internally. It just provides an additional option and strengthens the hand of those that uh, we are trying to empower within these institutions to to allow those institutions to better understand and implement effective AML programs. So um, I, I don't see it as coming at the expense of internal cooperation. I see it as a last resort, as you've described, um, and a last resort that that should further empower those individuals in trying to resolve things internally by giving attention to that um, avenue of recourse that that individuals now have um, unequivocally um, through this statute. So I, I think that's that's really important. Can I back up for a second, Tom, sure. if I can, just on, um, you know, the whistleblowing is so important for, for the reasons that we've discussed. It, it does get into, you know, a broader set of challenges associated with um, how we how we do govern our AML programs and institutions and how we communicate between institutions and the public sector. I mentioned at the top interagency coordination and, and um, in cooperation across law enforcement regulators and in the private sector. Um, I also wanted to point out, and I know Gail's talked a bit about this, um, the public-private sector partnerships um, that are part of this legislation as well. That's another governance model that I think um, many have been speaking about in recent years that for us to do a better job as a system in hardening our system against illicit finance, we have to communicate more and govern more collaboratively between the public and private sector. We talked about FinCEN exchange in the first, um, the first episode. We've talked a little bit about public-private partnerships. Um, we've talked a little bit about the Bank Secret Sector Advisory Group, I think, um, at FinCEN and having um, subcommittees on innovation and on partnerships with um, information sharing with the public, with the public and private sector between them. Um, and across them. And then finally, you know, the concept of um, shared compliance resources, which we haven't really spoken about. It's, it's an area that regulators have, have opened up through interagency guidance to allow financial institutions to share compliance resources um, in ways that uh, allow for more effective and, and, and sustainable use of resources. Um, but it hasn't really been colored in. This, this act, among other things, codifies uh, the use of the, the, the sharing of resources in ways that represent another governance model that I think is really worth exploring because it, it pulls us in the direction of what many of us call utility models, where um, we look at shared, uh, not only shared costs, but shared risk management responsibilities to say when we have common customers, we have when we have common markets, we have common products and services and delivery channels, do, do those create opportunities for us to collectivize in some ways risk management um, and not just to save money, which is important because it means that we can free up resources to look at other areas of risk, but to be more effective um, and ultimately bringing uh, together different parts of what is a balkanized financial system or transaction or relationship into you know, a platform of, of common interest. I think that is the future in governance that, that we want to, without um, taking responsibility away from the risk-based approach and, and the financial institutions on the front lines, support that effort through the use of these utility models that can collectivize risk management on the back of shared data, shared um, compliance officers, and, and shared compliance resources um, that can assist institutions in better understanding and managing risk on a continuous basis. So I think those are other signature elements of what we see in the act. And all of this will take years <laughs> of rulemaking to implement, which I know Gail's going to talk about later. But um, you know, we're, we're, 
this is this is the beginning, not the end of um, of the next phase of modernization and reform. Chip, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But uh, once again, if our listeners were interested in obtaining more information on any of the topics uh, that we've talked about, where can they go? So I'm going to do this all day long, Tom. Dolphin, dedicated online financial integrity network. Uh, this is a great platform that our firm has put together for the financial crime compliance community, for the counterless of finance community. Uh, it's, for, it's for those um, in financial institutions, those in financial service providers, those in government, whether you're regulating, investigating, um, analyzing um, illicit finance risk um, and risk mitigation programs. Um, this is a platform that is designed to be an online workspace to help you do your job more effectively. So if you want to talk about the NDAA and the reforms that are coming, we'll have space on Dolphin uh, for you to raise those issues uh, with our experts and for you to learn from our experts what what is happening as it's happening um, uh, as this act gets implemented through implementing regulations over the next several years. So please come see us on Dolphin or at a minimum, come find us at K2integrity.com. Great to be with you, Tom. Thanks so much for having me again. Thanks again. I look forward to continuing the conversation, Chip. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Integrity Matters, exploring the National Defense Authorization Act. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow for another episode. Please check out the great resources provided by K2 Integrity, which are listed on the show notes, their website, and the new Dolphin site. This special five-part podcast series is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network, sponsored by K2 Integrity.